Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Two years ago, Uzbekistan's government ended its monopoly on cotton production, in place for more than a century. As production has gone private, workers' pay has soared, and forced labor, once nearly ubiquitous, is quickly disappearing. And there's no doubting that tropical regions play host to a wider variety of species than those at higher latitudes. But the idea that tropical creatures are more colorful remained up for debate. Now, an enormous study of birds strongly suggests it's true. But first... People took to the streets of Sao Paulo over the weekend to protest against Jair Bolsonaro, the country's populist president. His popularity, though, has long been waning. Brazilians are still reeling from a poorly handled pandemic, alongside high interest rates, low growth, and stubborn inflation. In October, they'll decide whether to re-elect the increasingly authoritarian Mr. Bolsonaro for another four years. We hope that this presidency changes, says one protester, and that our former president Lula returns. Lula is Luiz Inácio Lula Silva of the left-wing Workers' Party, the PT, now taking another run at high office. Todo volta ao jogo. Quero jogar, quero ganhar, porque tenho certeza que eu posso melhorar a vida desse povo. He recently confirmed that he was indeed back in the game. I want to play, he said, and I want to win because I'm sure I can improve the lives of these people. The last time Lula held the presidency, from 2003 to 2010, his welfare programs lifted millions out of poverty. But he was later caught up in a corruption scandal that eventually put him in prison. With Lula currently leading Mr. Bolsonaro in the polls, it seems Brazilians may be willing to overlook his conviction when it comes to voting later this year. When Lula left office in 2010, he was incredibly popular. His popularity rating was at 80%. He received trucks of gifts from well-wishers. And Barack Obama, then the US president, called him one of the most popular politicians on earth. Emma Hogan is The Economist's America's editor. His opponents prefer another way of describing him. According to a center-left vote last year, he was the biggest corrupter in Brazilian history. The current president, Jair Bolsonaro, has referred to him as the nine-fingered thief, because as a young man, Lula lost a finger in a factory accident. So his rivals really don't want voters, who are going to go to the polls in October, to forget that Lula was handed a 12-year sentence on charges of money laundering and corruption. And he watched the previous election from prison. 
Now, I know that scandal was was really complicated, but in a nutshell, can you tell us what it was about? The scandal, known as Lava Jato, or car wash, began in 2014. It started as an operation to catch small-time currency dealers above a petrol station, but it soon reached further than anyone could imagine. The former Brazilian president, Lula da Silva, has been taken into custody for questioning. This as part of a probe by police into claims of bribery and money laundering. Judges at the appeals court in Porto Alegre upheld Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva's conviction for corruption and money laundering. The scandal eventually extended to 11 countries and implicated a dozen current or former Latin American heads of states, including Lula. In the end, he was convicted of accepting bribes in the form of a beachfront apartment and renovations on a country house, neither of which he owned. He always denied these allegations, but his was the case that caught headlines. He was by far and away the largest figure named in these investigations. So given that background, why is he getting another shot at the presidency? So Lava Jato had already been undermined by a series of blunders. Leaked messages released by an investigative website revealed that the judge had been collaborating with a prosecutor against Lula. Last year, the Supreme Court agreed. It ruled that the judge, Sergio Moro, had been biased. This happened weeks after a justice had already annulled Lula's convictions. In total, Two dozen cases against Lula and his family have been either archived, suspended or closed, um, mostly because of tainted evidence or errors um, to do with the investigation. So Lula, he's always denied all of the charges. And right now he seems absolutely vindicated. And so do the voters believe him? Well, what's interesting is not all are convinced. In a survey earlier this year, found that just over half of those who were asked and 22% of those who had voted for Lula's party, the Workers' Party, did not believe that the archiving in one of these cases against Lula proved his innocence. On March the 2nd, the last case against Lula to be shelved because of tainted evidence was about Swedish planes. One of Lula's sons received 2.5 million reais, which is about $700,000 from a lobbyist, ostensibly to promote American football. But at the same time, that lobbyist was working for a Swedish plane maker, which went on to win a controversial tender for new fighter jets. Prosecutors accused Lula, uh, who'd left office at this point, of influencing his successor to agree to the deal. That case, although it has been shelved, is still very much in the mind of some Brazilian voters. Other cases could be revived by the federal court, but that would take years. And are cases like that the extent of the Lava Jato scandal? Well, critics have a second complaint against Lula or, or more broadly towards his party, that during his first term in office, the Workers' Party illegally used public money to pay politicians a monthly stipend in return for support of its programme. Lula has always maintained that he doesn't know about this policy or indeed payments to Odebrecht, a construction company that was routinely awarded padded contracts. But two of his chiefs of staff were at the heart of both of those scandals. And although you know, in public Lula has decried Odebrecht as a criminal organisation, on the company's spreadsheet of colourful code names, their accountants called him Amigo. And after he left office, he toured Africa and Latin America on their dime. 
And so if he wins this time, do you think do you think things will be different? Lava Jato has changed some aspects of Brazil. Uh, the biggest is that firms that try to bribe politicians now face huge legal and financial punishments if they're caught. But at the same time, the investigation didn't end impunity in Brazil. It brought similar methods to American anti-corruption task forces, such as plea bargaining to the country. But fundamentally, there still remains a culture of corruption in Brazil. And although uh, Jair Bolsonaro came to power promising to end corruption, he's actually quietly capitalized on the backlash against Lava Jato. He's reduced the powers of institutions that fight corruption and replaced their leaders. So although many of his rivals will be talking about Lava Jato a lot, it's definitely the case that corruption was not limited to one party or one person in the country. All right, Emma, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, John. The cotton fields of Uzbekistan are the site of massive labor reform. As recently as 2017, adults, and before that, many children too, were sent into the fields and used as forced labor during the harvest. For years, it was one of the world's largest such state-run systems, subject to lots of boycotts by big clothing brands. And then, suddenly, it wasn't. There's been a really astonishing turnaround in Uzbekistan when it comes to the use of forced labor in the cotton fields. Joanna Lillis writes about Central Asia for The Economist. What we're seeing now in Uzbekistan is all sides basically agreeing that forced labor has actually been rooted out of the cotton harvest. So this is a a remarkable progress. It's a real turnaround. The state monopoly on the cotton industry, which had been in place for a century, has been abolished. And rights groups are reporting that officials no longer frog march citizens of Uzbekistan into the fields. So what are workers saying about the conditions now? Apart from the fact that they're not being forced into the fields anymore, they're being attracted by higher pay and better conditions. I I went into the cotton fields with Shukrat Ganiyev, who's a veteran human rights campaigner in Uzbekistan, who's been monitoring forced labor for years. Now, it was only a few years ago that um, he sort of recalled with a laugh about how he used to have to sneak around the cotton fields to try and speak to cotton pickers without anybody seeing. And he would try to find out if they were there voluntarily. And um, most of the time they weren't. But nowadays in the last harvest, was openly leading a fact-finding mission under the auspices of the International Labour Organization, a body of the United Nations, a short drive away from the Silk Road city of Bukhara. And he was just openly going and talking to the workers, finding out if they were there voluntarily or not. And when I was there, they were saying that they were there voluntarily. And on March the 1st, the ILO reported that forced labour was now so insignificant that even though they conducted 11,000 interviews, they found it hard to quantify and detect because there are so few people saying that they were forced. So what's responsible for this shift from being incredibly widespread to essentially undetectable? What's really responsible is the determination of one man, that's the president, Shavkat Mizioyev. Under his predecessor, whose name was Islam Karimov, who was a very autocratic president, and under him, um, Uzbekistan had one of the world's largest state-orchestrated forced labour systems. I mean, by conservative estimates, at least one million people were forced into the fields to, during the cotton harvest every autumn. 
Now, Islam Karimov died in 2016, and he was succeeded by Shavkat Mizioyev. And quite soon after coming to power, he made a surprise pledge to abolish the practice of forced labour. He basically presided over a stiffening of penalties on local officials for pushing unwilling workers into the fields. And he also ensured that the wages for the pickers, which are set by the state, have been increased. So pay has risen by around 170% since 2017. You know, it does remain low, although it's comparable to other agricultural work in Uzbekistan. Labourers have to still collect around 10 kilos of cotton to earn a dollar. And that would take a skilled labourer a little bit less than an hour, perhaps. And what has that meant for the industry itself, if if the sort of the the core labor part of it has changed so much? Cotton production now is organized around privately owned clusters. And so the idea is that inside these clusters, cotton will be both grown and processed into textiles and so on, clothing or, or into yarn at the stage that they're at now. They don't all yet process cotton, but the idea is that they will process cotton. One such cluster that I visited called Silverleaf, it's in the Jizak region in central Uzbekistan. I there met a cotton grower from Mississippi called Dan Patterson, who runs an operation that is promising transparency and traceability of the supply chain to ensure that there really is no forced labour. And he's imported a lot of high-tech farm equipment and tractors from the United States that can track what's happening in the field so that it uploads data to a satellite. And he has a very high-tech command and control center on the farm where they can basically show where every little bit of cotton uh, came from. So uh, it's a fairly sophisticated approach to being able to, to keep up with all the digital ag that we're working on. But that way we know who did what, when, if there was a problem. Um, so adding this layer of transparency means that it will be easy to prove to foreign buyers that no forced labour has been used to pick the crop. And hopefully that will bring investment into the cotton sector. And has that worked? All, all of these changes in the forced labour, has that brought foreign investment? There's been a coalition of rights groups called the Cotton Campaign, established a boycott of Uzbek cotton and got over three hundred brands to sign up to that boycott over the last uh, decade or so. And they have actually just called for the lifting of that boycott uh, on the grounds that forced labour has been eradicated. Big brands that signed the the boycott called the Cotton Pledge, like Intertex, H&M, Nike, Walmart. This is the moment when they may feel more free to start sourcing cotton from Uzbekistan. So selling to global brands um, would boost demand, create more jobs. And this is important for Uzbekistan because it's really keen to move away from exporting raw cotton into the more lucrative business of producing finished garments. And it has a sort of booming textile industry that it hopes will boom a lot more when big investors that have been reluctant to source start to move in, so they hope. And you said these changes were more or less the the doing just of of the president. He's to be applauded for making these changes and ultimately creating jobs. The president's plan to root out state-sponsored forced labour from the cotton fields has been implemented and has worked out. And certainly that is to be applauded. Um, However, campaigners are wary of certain factors that remain a problem in Uzbekistan. Now, they have called for the lifting of the boycott, but they do point out that you need a robust civil society to keep monitoring and to make sure that forced labour doesn't reappear in the fields and generally to monitor workers' rights to ensure that responsible sourcing of Uzbek cotton is possible. Now, although civil society has a lot more freedom than it did under Islam Karimov, the former president, 
London, the government still keeps civil society on a very tight leash. So non-governmental groups that the authorities do not like the look of are basically denied permits to operate. So it's clear that Uzbekistan still needs to go further down the path of reform, but there is, campaigners say, now an opening to be able to source responsibly cotton from Uzbekistan. Joanna, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Nature lovers, take note. If you want to see the greatest variety of life, book yourself a ticket to the tropics. The lower latitudes play host to a far greater diversity of species than those closer to the poles. But there's more to it than raw numbers. Look at the birds, for example, and you'll see an obvious pattern. Take the paradise tanager of the Amazon, with its bright green cheeks, deep blue breast, and purple wingtips. Or there's Borneo's black-crowned pitta, which, below the crown, sports a lilac back, cherry-red breast, and shimmering blue wings. Now compare those with birds from higher latitudes, such as the drab, brown, Eurasian wren. Or the grey-brown dunnock. You notice something? In the 19th century, European naturalists like Alexander von Humboldt and Charles Darwin traveled to the tropics. And one of the things that was consistently noted in their journals and their diaries was how colorful the natural world was in those climes compared to back home. Gilad Amit is a science correspondent at The Economist. And this was an anecdotal observation that by the 1970s, scientists tried to put in terms of a testable hypothesis. Does colorfulness increase as latitude decreases? So it was in the 70s when this became a subject for experimentation. That's right, but the technology didn't really exist to test it on a global scale because what you'd need is to find some organism or some family of organisms that's represented all across the world and you'd need to get access to samples from it from all sorts of different latitudes and you'd need to be able to count the number of colours on each specimen to a very high degree of accuracy and then chart that. Fortunately, we now have this new study conducted by Chris Cooney at the University of Sheffield and colleagues of the Natural History Museum that really demonstrate this hypothesis to be true in the most comprehensive way ever. Because they gathered up a sufficient number of specimens or pictures of them? What they did was they got access to the Natural History Museum's collection of birds and they were able to access over 4,500 specimens from those archives, which they photographed over the course of many years. They focused specifically on a family called the passerines, or songbirds, which includes the blue tit and the robin and birds like that. The total sample represents something like half the total diversity of known birds. And they took images of all of these birds from the top, from the side, from the front, and then used machine learning algorithms, which they double-checked themselves, to extract the pixel colour from hundreds of points on the plumage. And they then were able to get, for at least a specimen from each species, a list of all of the colours that that bird contained on its plumage. But how exactly do you d- define colourfulness in, in this context? 
that's a debate that the scientists themselves had. But what they decided on was a definition of how many colors exist on any particular bird. So a brightly colored yellow bird, for instance, would be indicative of a less colorful region than a bird that had all sorts of different shades of brown going into black, for instance. And there are some spectacularly multicolored birds. The paradise tanager, which exists in the Amazon, has this green mask that it wears on its face. It has all kinds of shades of blue down its front. It has black wings with this gorgeous sunset range of colors down the middle of its back. And that was the most colorful bird that they map of the four and a half thousand. There are all sorts of comparatively boring European birds like the dunnock, which is brown, dark brown and grey. All due respect to to European birds. So the, the, the findings here bear out the pattern that was seen so long ago? They did, yes. Once they plotted the number of colours against geography, they found the bird samples at the equator uh, had between 90 and 100 different colours on average, and those at, say, 60 degrees latitude north and south had closer to 70 colours. So it's a fairly substantial difference in colourfulness with latitude. And obviously this is just for one family of birds. And the hypothesis, in theory, holds true for all organisms. So this is the first of many steps. And the researchers would like to move on to butterflies, for instance, next, as they are also global, they're also very colourful, and they are much easier to photograph. And so does any of this point to a a, a reason why uh, animals that are closer to the equator should be more colourful than than further away? So there are all sorts of hypotheses. It's worth pointing out that equatorial trends are not uncommon. There are for example, more species to be found at latitudes closer to the equator than there are further away. And the authors of this paper didn't come to any firm conclusions, but they did show that colourfulness tracks with the resources available in the environment, as well as the biodiversity. This is a really comprehensive demonstration of this hypothesis for birds, and it's very likely that it holds true for other animals as well. It seems like the notebook jottings made 200 years ago by scientists like Darwin and Wallace are actually verified. Thanks very much for your time, Gilad. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.